This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we're back. And not only are we back, but he's back. And we're going to... Who's that? (laughs) We have the, and I'm using this word advisedly, the resurrection of Benjamin Netanyahu, which is kind of the overall scope of many things that we're going to talk about today, the most racist, hateful, apartheid, <clears throat> xenophobic, Islamophobic uh, regime in the apartheid history, which is a lot to say given their history of oppression, occupation, and annexation. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about the the so-called red wave that never happened with our midterm elections. That's right. Instead of a red wave, Jamal, I think we had a red fart. So we'll talk a little bit about that. A lot to talk about today, obviously. But uh, more importantly, maybe not as, well, equally important, I would say, is a really extraordinary interview that you did with Francesca Albanese, who's the United Nations Special Rapporteur, who's going to be discussing her much-awaited report on the situation of human rights abuses in Palestine in the occupied 67 area. It's a groundbreaking report. It's dovetailing with a lot of things that's going that are going on in the United Nations in relation to the apartheid regime. But it's a really great interview that you did with her. It's a very important report, Jess, and uh, we're going to post actually the full report on our website so people can can read it because we had a, a, a nice interview over half an hour, but we could talk about it for like hours. So uh, I recommend that, recommend that everyone, when they have a chance to, to, to click on the link on our website and, and, and to read it. So let's go to uh, the interview, Jess. On October 27, United Nations Special Rapporteur Francesca Albanese presented the UN General Assembly with her much-awaited report on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied in 1967. In conclusion, it states, realizing the inalienable right of the Palestinian people to self-determination requires dismantling once and for all the Israeli settler colonial occupation and its apartheid practices, and that international law is very clear in this regard. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Francesca Albanese. Ms. Albanese is the current special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. She's an Italian international law expert and previously worked for a decade as a human rights expert for the United Nations, including the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Relief and Work Agency for Palestine Refugees. She is also a senior advisor on migration and forced displacement for the think tank Arab Renaissance for Democracy and Development, ARDD. She has published widely on the legal situation in Israel and Palestine. Her latest book, released, in 2020, Palestinian Refugees in International Law offers a comprehensive legal analysis of the situation 
of Palestinian refugees from its origins to modern day reality. Welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Ms. Albanese. Thank you very much. And please call me Francesca. I will. Thank you. So let me start by by having you explain to our audience uh, what the mandate of the special rapporteur involves and what its historical origin. Um, special procedures, uh, special mandate holders, um, like special rapporteurs, special envoys, um, are independent experts appointed by the Human Rights Council to basically report to the Human Rights Council, occasionally, as it is in my case, to the General Assembly as well. Uh, it's um, the, the, A special rapporteur is normally an expert on a given theme or on a given region. My mandate is, um, is a country-based one. And uh, we serve this role voluntarily and um, to the best of our, our capacity. Uh, apart from reporting, uh, we are obliged to interact with uh, any possible stakeholders relevant to the mandate, governmental and non-governmental actors. So this is in a nutshell. This mandate was created in 1993, and there have been seven special rapporteurs before me. I'm the first uh, female uh, special rapporteur serving this mandate. And um happy to tell you more about how I intend to discharge this mandate, if it's interesting to your audience. Yeah, Absolutely. But also prior to, to, to this, I should mention, uh, you have uh, considerable background experience on the situation in Palestine and Israel, especially the experience of refugees. Maybe you could also talk yeah. about that. Yeah, I think that this makes a huge difference because for many, um, the question of Palestinian refugees is sort of a side issue, big uh, sensitive, political, and I've experienced this as I was working with the United Nations, because as I joined UNRWA with the human rights background I had, I, I, I was puzzled by why there was no reference to Palestinian refugees in the work of treaty bodies, for example, or in the work of special procedures. And, you know, this is also the, the I, I knew back then, this was the result of UNHCR always active to make sure that there was um, there was a refugee perspective in the work of treaty bodies and special procedures. But UNRWA didn't have this interaction, which started as I joined the agency. And you can see the, the difference because in the last uh, uh, 10 years, there has been an increasing reference in all countries where Palestinian refugees are recommending national authorities to um, take certain measures to improve the situation of Palestinian refugees. The same way, the same way, um, it's very difficult for, for a special rapporteur, it was difficult for a special rapporteur to tackle the question of the past, what preceded 1967, because my mandate, I should have said in the beginning, only concerns the, Palis the occupied Palestinian territories. So what happens inside the land that remains of historical Palestine? Um, so it can, I cannot investigate practices affecting the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, for example. And uh, again, when it comes to the refugees, everyone is, uh, is pretty, um, un uneasy. Uh, <clears throat> uh, is, is, a, is not at ease. And, uh, for me, it's obvious because having known the situation, uh, from, uh, an historical, factual and legal perspective, uh, I can't but talk about that throughout my work because the present 
is also an intimate reflection of the lack of resolution of the past. Let's let's get into in, into this comprehensive report, the recent uh, report that you have. What were some of your key findings and and conclusions upon completing this report? One of my key findings is that uh, the current debate must change. <laughs> the current debate, I mean, uh, how the the question of Palestine is discussed at the international level. I criticize the fact that the international community and primarily um, Western states insist of a negotiated solution, insist on a two-state solution to be pursued via negotiation. Uh, I'm not questioning the two-state solution at all. I'm just saying that this is not a conflict between two parties, between two states, between two equal. This is a relationship between an illegal occupier, because it's fully documented the occupation is illegal. I can elaborate upon that if needed. And then occupied, a colonizer, in fact, and a colonized. And I argue in the report why it's necessary to call out the current occupation as a settler colonial one. And... um, In a way, I say that the Palestinians shouldn't be called to negotiate uh, the the conditions of their subjugation. And we cannot expect the Palestinians to achieve freedom via negotiation because this this is more than naive. No colonized people has been set free through negotiation. And the other thing is that in the meantime, some other, um, the the discourse is also made of uh, other arguments like the uh, economic one, which uh, emphasizes the need for economic prosperity. But what what, what is economic prosperity where people cannot enjoy their rights, when people are under foreign rule, as it is for for the Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory? And um, and also I criticize the humanitarian approach because the, the international community and there is an entire industry, an entire machinery supporting and providing, supporting the Palestinians and providing humanitarian aid. I'm not saying that humanitarian aid is not necessary under the current circumstances. But the point is that humanitarian aid cannot be an end on its own. And humanitarian aid can never be a substitute for a political solution in line with international law. So it shouldn't be a fig leaf, which is what it is in my view. And this is why, I mean, my report starts from a very critical point of view. And the key argument is that the current occupation is not only illegal because it it fails anything that is compliance with international humanitarian law and with the law of occupation. It's fully demonstrated, including by my predecessor, that the current occupation is carried out in bad faith. (laughs) And and it has translated into conquests, which is absolutely prohibited in international law. But I also say that it's incompatible with the right of self-determination, that it's inalienable rights of all people, including the Palestinians. Actually, it's established as an inalienable rights for the Palestinian people as a whole, huh? including the Palestinians inside Israel and the Palestinian refugees. But I can only discuss the solutions inside the, occupi- the OPT, the occupied Palestinian territory. But I also argue, and this is central, that such occupation is intended, is engineered to prevent, to prevent the realization of the right of self-determination territorially, politically, economically, and culturally. And therefore, there should be a paradigm shift in the way the international community deal with the question of Palestine. 
I want to talk about this uh, paradigm uh, shift because uh, your report ad- addresses the current approach of ad- uh, of uh, Israel's human rights violations as siloed and sidestepping mm-hmm. the overarching context of historical systematic apartheid a crime under international law and mm. the extreme imbalance of power uh, of Israel. So what is that alternative paradigm you recommend? I think that a solution um, cannot be afforded, cannot be pursued without taking into account uh, a human rights approach. And when I call for a human rights approach, it concerns all human beings living there. I'm not calling for any any the uprooting of anyone, but I say applying international law, particularly human rights law, means dismantling the occupation. Israel has no reason to have boots on the ground. Why are soldiers in Jenin, in Nablus, in Area C? Why Israel is displacing 1,200 people from Masafer Yatta to create a firing zone? I mean, this is, think of it. It's an aberration. To, in a firing zone is to train its soldiers. Well, the soldiers can train on um, Israel's metropolitan territory. They don't need the Palestinian territory and they don't need to displace 1,200 human beings. These are, these are lives. And um, of course, without taking into account of their needs, of their psychological well-being, of where they're going to go. It's, look, this is, this is so illegal that I don't even know where to start. And therefore, um, it's necessary, it's absolutely, absolutely necessary to keep an overarching view of, uh, of what is needed to get, uh, to get out of the impasse. So what is involved in the special rapporteur assembling a report? Where, where do you draw your information from? Because people are going to question, okay, where do you come up with all these facts? Yeah, normally, normally special rapporteurs write their reports after uh, conducting country visits. In my case, it's difficult because this, uh, Israel has prevented special rapporteurs from entering uh, the occupied Palestinian territory, over which Israel has no sovereignty. Nevertheless, it um, it controls the borders and much more. Um, for uh, the past 15, 15 or 16 years. So before special rapporteurs used to send a note to the personal note to the, um, uh, to the permanent mission in Geneva or to the embassy wherever they resided and entered. Now it's, uh, the, the, even the UN ex- have sort of required other procedures because last time a special rapporteur set foot in Israel, he was arrested, Professor Richard Falk. It was uh, it was uh, absurd. But however, I, I even question the fact that as a special rapporteur, as an independent expert of mission who has no interest whatsoever in, in being in Israel per se, I don't need a visa. I just need uh, to be authorized in. So I've communicated with the Israeli authorities that I intend to go and I intend to go before the end of the year. Um, then they might stop me. But in this case, I will be able to say I was denied entry. So far, I've just been ignored, which is for me is not the same. And we might debate about that. I do debate a lot with the United Nations about that. But so in the in the absence of uh, 
access to the territory? How do we write our reports? Um, look, the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory is probably the best documented in the entire world. I still, I mean, I've tried to think myself on another situation where the human rights and humanitarian uh, I mean, humanitarian law violations are so well documented. There is none. Um, it's in your face. So, I mean, you, you can't you can't ignore it. I mean, once you go there, it, it just jumps right right at you. You cannot ignore it, right? Yeah. And I used to live there. I used to live there. So, and I've gone there. Um, I mean, I lived there until 2013 for three years, and then I've been uh, since from 2013 to this year. I've regularly gone to to the occupied Palestinian territory, not to Gaza. Last time I entered Gaza, it was in 2012, many, many wars ago. But uh, but yeah, so I know the situation in the in the occupied Palestinian ter- in the eastern part of the occupied Palestinian territory. So the West Bank and East Jerusalem fairly well. So it's uh, and I'm in contact. So pending the lack of visits, I can still access fairly decent information but this doesn't substitute i want to meet with the people both israelis and palestinians engaged in uh, this resistance to of course palestinians first and foremost but also the israelis trying to fight fight the occupation and i'm uh, i'm really uh, i'm really quite 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 proud and and glad to to say that there are probably not many <laughs> But there are Israelis who, I mean, looking at the vote, not many, but there are Israelis who stand against this. And this is a fight that is to be conducted on two fronts. The Palestinians, uh, it's their liberation cause. So, of course, they need to lead this. But the Israelis have their role to play into that because what is to be dismantled is this settler colonial architecture, which traps, which traps them both. So going to back to your question, Jama, um, the I will keep on writing the, the reports as best as I can, but of course I will try to enter both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip because this is necessary. I own it to the those who are out there suffering the in and out uh, the under the yoke of occupation. The report also states that focusing on apartheid alone will not completely address the issue of occupation and land, land appropriation, for example, in, in, in East Jerusalem. Can you uh, explain this? Yeah, no, in fact, I say that uh, the the apartheid framework is absolutely critical, is very important, necessary. At the same time, while it makes sense, it has two different sets of implications for the Palestinians inside Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, because there has been so much that the Palestinians have given in order to have their own independent state, that calling for the end of apartheid doesn't immediately address and resolve the question of Israeli rule and domination over the occupied Palestinian territory. I'm not uh, uh, discrediting and I'm not disregarding at all the apartheid framework. I use it, but as a building block over which we can step to stick the head of the parapet and see what is the landscape. And the landscape landscape tells me that there is no reason to have Israeli domination, Israeli rule 
over the occupied Palestinian territory, which by international law and consensus should be to the Palestinians to decide what it is to be. And then I'm agnostic, Jamal, about one state, two states, but the two states is there and should be recognized first and foremost as the starting point. And again, not something that is to be negotiated because this is an achievement of the Palestinians' national liberation movement, after all. No, this is what I, this is what I read, how I read history as well. You mentioned uh, that in many instances, uh, your findings were countered with a knee-jerk accusation of anti-Semitism by some members of the General Assembly who hadn't even bothered to read your findings in detail. Has there been considerable uh, pushback on your report? I think that my outrage during the interactive dialogue was uh, because of the anti-Semitic uh, label was at the for the, the way I had seen the Commission of Inquiries report, which by the way was stating something that had already been said that the occupation is unlawful, and still no one addressed a word addressed any con- any issues that were the content of the report among most Western states. Uh, and this is why I said, I, I, I pushed back on this and I said, this is not the way discussions should happen in this, uh, in this uh, assembly. Because I, it was weird, Jamal, but they, sem- they seemed like reciting coordinated talking points. I don't know if this, maybe I'm naive, maybe this is how business is run, but well, who authored those talking points? I'm curious because they were all saying what the Israeli ambassador had said, which is puzzling. Uh, there was much less backlash to my report because it spoke, well, first of all, my mandate is an historical one, which Israel doesn't engage with at all. And so they simply ignore me. I mean, the ambassador, the Israeli ambassador left the room uh, as I started speaking. But so the discussion was more honest and in the aftermath of the report, I, I wouldn't say that I've had backlash from, from states. I've also had positive feedback from states that I've overtly criticized in the report because they know that this, discu- this discourse is necessary. I'm not saying something new that I've invented. This is what, in a way, the Palestinians, including inside the UN, has denounced all along. And I'm not support the fact that there is a settler colonial endeavor. And this is something that was also supported by the General Assembly itself until 30 years ago. This is, I'm just bringing back the discussion to where it belongs. Um, and one thing I should add, Jamal, the, uh, there is a barrage of accusations of anti-Semitism against me and against anyone who utters a word of criticism against Israel. This has nothing to do with the fighting, the legitimate fight against anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, as I often say, is alive and kicking. And myself, I mean, not my, I, I'm not an expert on the issue, but I started understanding more, reading more, learning more from Jewish scholars and including meetings with Jewish communities in Europe. I had no idea, but there is such a pressure on alternative voices 
there is a concern for freedom of expression elsewhere. So the fact that they tackle me or they attack me and the commission of inquiry is nothing compared to what human rights defenders, lawyers, and normal human beings face in terms of retaliation and attacks by um, groups which are very much against any scrutiny of uh, Israeli practices against the Palestinians, especially in the West. I mean, do you feel there is a shift? I mean, there is a change, uh, you know, in, in people's view Uh, when they watch the, you know, the Israeli go- government and its uh, spokespeople uh, conflate the criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. I mean, I mean, this is almost like an old story that I know right here in the United States. People don't believe in in that. They're 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 creating confusion because we do have real anti-Semitism. Yes, and that's why this conflating it with with the criticism of Israel just like you know cast a, a dark shadow on the definition of anti-semitism yeah yes uh totally i i have the feeling that this is going to endanger jewish communities wherever they are um including in parts of the world where anti-semitism is not a serious issue as it is in western in, in western countries um is uh, antisemitism and islamophobia we need to we need to underline and any form of bigotry i really encourage your audience to read the last report that was submitted by the special rapporteur on racism tedaya kume which is phenomenal because she was required to analyze the rise of anti um, of nazi fascism so she spoke at length about antisemitism but also she has two wonderful pages um uh, criticizing the endorsement of the ihra working definition so you know what it is right the ihra definition Uh, which conflates, as you say, anti-Semitism with criticism against Israel. And she says, this is this is wrong in all possible ways because it's not only based on a proper human rights assessment, it doesn't represent the multitude of uh, Jewish voices on the question. And they point to the fact that there are many cases of eminent Jewish scholars like those who have signed the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, 350 scholars on Holocaust studies and Judaism. So what best can you find out there when it comes to Jewish voices? And so they are not a bunch of technocrats. They they have people, in most cases, they come from families of Holocaust survivors. And plus they have this specific understanding and and uh, and and focus in their professional experience and they they push back on the ira because it's uh it's it's floated it's a it's not a valid instrument to fight anti-semitism and living in tunisia where there is still a significant jewish community um it's very interesting but i hear I mean, some of the of those who I met in this in this community saying, um, well, on the one hand, they have been in Israel and they have returned um, because they felt discriminated themselves in the sense there is a, a sort of leveling of of what Israel projects as being the Jewish identity. So, for example, people from the Arab region do not necessarily see themselves um, uh, recognized 
or appreciated in the in the Israeli endeavor. And I was listening to a talk by uh, Professor Joseph Massad on this issue, which confirmed what is just my anecdotal anecdotal sense. But also, they were they were saying another thing that they think that this instrumentalization of the fight against antisemitism sooner or later will endanger them as well. You see what I mean? So it's, no, um, no, I, it's, I it's very, very, it's very, 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 very sensitive. And there should be more discussion about that with more involvement of Jewish scholars because they are a legitimate voice to, to this. What are the prospects uh, for changing the UN's approach to Israeli disregard for international law? I think it will change because the, the tide has changed. Has changed. Um, I think that the, the Palestinian civil society, first and foremost, has uh, taken many risks in recent years, including in pursuing the uh the 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 root of accountability international justice and human rights at all costs this is start this starts to 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 pay back because i think that the 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 tsunami provoked by the the apartheid uh discourse is very is, it can be seen among civil society i do see that in many communities it's reactivating a sort of solidarity solidarity a grassroots solidarity with the palestinian people um which had somewhat toned down in the past uh, past decades i don't know if you you have this perception but but as as a european i do coming from a country where I often say until 30 years ago, the question of Palestine and support to Palestinian self-determination was a bipartisan one without accusing or attacking Israel, without discussing the existence of the state of Israel that was out of question. But at the same time, the Palestinians had their sacrosanct right, the rights of self-determination. Now it has changed completely. And what I, in my view, I mean, the way I read it is because of where Oslo has taken us in terms of perception. So to answer your question, outside the UN, the tide has changed and it has not uh, uh, registered yet with member states, but it will. And eventually states are always uh, the the, the latecomers, not all of them, because there are uh, states in the global south and including some states in Europe, like Ireland. So those who have suffered colonialism themselves get it. And so things will change. But the problem is, how long will it take? How much more suffering? How much more arbitrary arrest and detention? How much more killing will we have to, the, or the Palestinians? And to an extent, the Israelis are, as well will have to endure. Because I often say, uh, although they are the ones with the upper hands, I'm not sure they are the lucky ones because you, the, the, the system is so dehumanizing for everyone that all, no one is lucky in that, in that place. I mean, in order for, of course, you have to have a grassroots uh, movement starts with that change, but we don't see, especially right here in the United States, a fundamental change within the government, neither uh, within the administration, Congress, etc. You know, your report talks about apartheid. Human Rights Watch uh, uh, basically 
labeled Israel as an apartheid state, uh, Amnesty International, the same thing. Israel's own human rights organization, Beth Salem, also talks about apartheid. Yet this label is rejected by governments. It is not because it is not something that is accepted in the halls of Congress right here or in the European Union. Uh, do you think that someday we'll reach that level where people are going to believe into these uh, organizations' reports that they worked so hard at assembling and, and say, yeah, this is what we're seeing there. It's apartheid. Look, I think that it won't happen naturally and it won't happen fast unless, unless there is an effort, including from civil society and the media, to call their denialism for what it is. It's racism. It's anti-Palestinian racism. And, you know, when I heard this, this term the first time, I was, what is it? And then I started looking at things through this angle, as it has been put forward, for example, by the Arab Canadian, an association of other Arab Canadian lawyers who have document. This is not an advocacy document. This is a documentation, a report which documents all the instances in which uh, Palestinians or people associated with the fight for justice in Palestine have been demoted, punished, humiliated, vilified, uh, forced to um, not uh, either not getting into promotion or being, being, being demoted, professors not getting tenure. You know that because this doesn't happen only in Canada. It happens in the US and there is the Center for Constitutional Rights and others doing terrific job in documenting these. And now it's happening in Europe as well. And the trend that you see is a discrimination of one group on the on the on the ground of ethnic uh, belonging is against, eventually it turns against the Palestinians. So this is why it should be exposed as anti-Palestinian racism. And I have the evidence myself that there is this bias against the Palestinians because I was recently in the US and in a closed door meeting in which there were uh, there was a good number of Israeli officials and many of them were not necessarily sympathetic for what I was saying, but I appreciated so much that they were sitting in the room, it was not obvious. And one of them asked me, genuinely, um, but don't you think that the Israelis have a point when they they fear the, the the Palestinian people, the Palestinian demographic bombshell. And I said, too, would it be okay to ask this question in the US? Would it be politically correct to ask if the Hispanic community or the African American community represent a bombshell for the for the white Americans? I think it would be awful to ask such a question because it would be racist. So we need to use that lens, Jamal, to push people back, to hold people uh, accountable, to apply the same principle, the same rules. This is not politics. This is this is the meaning of human rights. Human rights belong to human beings, otherwise are not effective. When uh, will the next report be presented? Uh, what do you plan to include in, in it that perhaps was not possible in this one? Um, I still have 11 reports to write in the context of my mandate. The next uh, one will be to the Human Rights Council. 
um due to be presented in march but i it is i have a couple of months left to write it i'm already writing it in fact and i'm i'm glad to also have received the support by a number of universities uh like the university of edinburgh the university of galway and um westminster university in canada um and also columbia university so i have many people helping me uh unpack the question of detention, carcerality. It's a huge issue and in fact is much bigger and uh, and deeper that we are used to think of. Um, so I'm looking at how carcerality is used in the context of occupation or not used because, for example, there are settlers, the colonists in the occupied Palestinian territory uh, who commit uh, violations day in and day out, terrorizing people, killing, maiming, and torching uh, orchards and killing uh, also livestock. But there is no justice uh, there. So how does it uh, apply or not apply? And from in, in terms of uh, legal framework, um, judicial, custodial framework, but also what it, what, it, what the occupation itself means for the Palestinian as a whole. Because I often argue that it's um, it's the overall occupation constitutes a form of carcerality uh, for the Palestinian people, and it's not just Gaza, as uh, um, human rights organization in Gaza says, it's not just Gaza, the open air prison. So this is what I'm going to look at, and of course. I will also focus in particular on uh, arrest and detention of children and the traumatic effect, the, the, the effect it has on young lives and their families. I was just yesterday talking to um, Israeli physicians who have for decades engaged on these issues and were also calling for my help on this uh, on this question because it's again i don't think that people appreciate what it means for a, for a human being to go through israeli jails as a palestinian so that there is no no freedom under occupation francesca albanese uh, thank you for coming on arab talk thank you jamal that's the voice in the face of francesca albanese she's the united nations special rapporteur Discussion, discussing her much-awaited report on human rights abuses in occupied Palestine, specifically in the area of 1967. Uh, Jamal, it's, there's a lot going on in the United Nations right now in relation to calling out the apartheid regime. Uh, we probably don't have time to go into all of it today, but this particular report has really significant repercussions for continuing to call out the illegality uh, of the annexation of uh, occupied Palestine. I mean, it's a big deal, uh, and it's causing quite a stir among uh, political, so-called political elite in the apartheid regime, as well as the State Department here. It's kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. And, and of course, uh, we, we get the usual response from is Israel first, trying <coughs> to ignore it, bury their heads in the sand, and then... Uh, try to uh, lob uh, charges of anti-Semitism and that Israel is singled out. Imagine Israel is like committing uh, human rights violations every single day. They're killing Palestinians every single day. And then whenever you uh, call them out for, on this just, then you're accused of being an anti-Semite 
or you or basically you're accused of singling out Israel. I mean, what do Palestinians have to do to demand well, equal treatment? <clears throat> well, Jamal, I would say the apartheid regime, the Israelis single out themselves. Um, no one is buying this kind of charge of anti-Semitism for calling them out for their human rights abuses, which continue unabated. And it's kind of ironic, right, Jamal? The the kind of uh, attacks, some of which are, you know, justifiable against Kanye West and Kyrie Irving for some of their comments, which are anti-Semitic. And, you know, they need to be called out appropriately. Yet, when the apartheid regime elects a racist regime, a hateful regime calling for the destruction and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Uh, when that happens, radio silence, you know, from the ADL and, you know, other corners, they get away with it. And anytime anybody attempts to call them out and hold them accountable for their atrocities, you know, they they level that canard of anti-Semitism. I don't think people are buying it as much anymore, Jamal. I don't think so. But, you know, with a lot of pressure, uh, especially when you have a, an entire army basically working for APAC and uh, ADL in this country and, and other surrogates in, in Congress, uh, they continue the attacks on academics. As you know, you're very well aware of trying to shut down the debate on college campuses, right? Uh, scare off politicians. Uh, scare of uh, corporations, individuals, uh, and and that's that's ongoing. We're going to talk about the Israeli elections in a minute. Uh, I want to bring us uh, to what's happening here. You know that that that. I'm uh, not sure it's that different. That 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 red wave that never materialized. Red fart. I call it the red fart, you know, Jamal. Uh, yes. But to me, out of all of this. Because you and I talked about this before, and we've seen this happen when they also the Democrats claimed, uh, you know, the blue wave that also never materialized. That's right. To me, this shines a spotlight again, and we, we I just want to remind you because I've mentioned it before. Uh, it shines a spotlight on the antiquated uh, polling system, just that we have in this country. I'm I'm sick and tired listening to these pundits. They're and wrong so, every time, and, Jamal. And so-called pollsters. I have a question for you. Do you know anyone under the age of 30 or even 40 who answers his or her phone from an unrecognized number? That's the no, question. no, no. Do, you, do no. you answer? Do you yourself answer any calls? I don't. I don't. So these polls, think about it in, 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 in the year 2022, they're still reliant on making a phone call. And you know who's going to answer that is like a retired person in their <laughs> 80s or something like this. And they're going to ask them, you know, what's your opinion? And then they'll say, you know, Donald Trump is coming back or something like this or the red wave. And whatever. And that's what they feed you on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, all these networks. And every single time they're wrong. They were wrong when... You were right on the election of Donald Trump. They were wrong, remember? Right. You kept saying Donald Trump was going to get elected, and they were saying, no, 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 wait until the next debate. Wait until... And they were wrong on the blue wave. Now they are wrong on the red wave. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. And I think you've put your finger, you know, squarely on the pulse of what's happening. They have antiquated polling. 
They miss Gen Z. They miss Gen X. They miss a lot of baby boomers because you're you're exactly right. The polling relies on people uh, answering their phone and then answering honestly and objectively to another person. Now, there's so many problems with that system of polling. And what was interesting about the red wave is that everybody, everybody, as you said, predicted this tsunami of Republicans taking over the House and the Senate. And what we have found out is that the Democrats held the Senate. We we just kind of found that out yesterday with the uh, Senator Mastow in Nevada uh, keeping her seat in, in the Senate. We still have the runoff in Georgia with Herschel Walker and uh, Raphael Warnock. That's a whole other thing to talk about. But the Democrats are not only going to hold the Senate, you know, the margin of victory still isn't fully determined yet, but whomever wins, and even if it is Republicans, the margin in the House is going to be one or two votes. That is not a red wave. They completely blew it, Jamal. They completely, completely blew it. That's why I'm I'm going to repeat myself. Don't believe in any of these polls, please. Yeah, I they, think that's I been, think that's right. And they've, I, been, they've been wrong unless they change the system. Uh, you know, just don't believe in them. Yeah, and I think that's right, Jamal. And I think, you know, thinking about what's going on in this country, and I kind of, you know, alluded to the kind of similarities that are happening in the apartheid regime and things like that. I mean, you have some really, really crazy people who did get elected. I mean, you had a number of election deniers uh, get elected into key positions, whether they're Congress people or secretaries of state or even, you know, other offices uh, in the in in the country, you know, that are flat out delusional in 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 believing that the election of 2020 was stolen who still don't believe that Joe Biden is president and we live in a country where there's still large numbers of people who don't believe that Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States so you know whatever kind of craziness we may be remarking on in other countries uh we have to look in the mirror Jamal because some of the people who got elected are really frightening people, and we will keep an eye on it, and we'll talk about it uh, extensively in the, in the in the next week. And or, speaking or, of frightening elections, he's back, Jamal. Yeah, he's Benjamin, back. When you said he's back, I was gonna say maybe you were <laughs> alluding to Donald Trump. But, well, he's uh, back too, Jamal. So know, we'll we'll be, get we'll get be. into that. But we'll get we'll get yes, to that. Benjamin Netanyahu and his uh, you know far right uh, racist fundamentalist. Uh, religious group have secured 70 of the Israeli Knesset's 120 seats. Uh, so that's pretty much going to ensure that the disgraced, just a reminder, he's a disgraced prime minister, still under investigation. Benjamin Netanyahu is going to return to power for a record six time, Jess. That's more than any Israeli right. prime minister. So, uh, and he's still under investigation for crimes. He, he's, you know, so here's what I call his team. I call it the apartheid dream team. <laughs> so Israel, you know, they better own on the Israelis better own, own up to this. They have elected their 
apartheid dream team just you know they've have now going to form a new government at its heart itmar ben gevir racist right. racist islamophobe calls for the ethnic cleansing of palestinians and the transfer of palestinian and who walks around carrying a gun threatening palestinians left and, and right and he is basically i mean you don't have to hide it he's nakedly a, a white supremacist uh, and fo- follows in the footsteps of uh, uh, Meir Kahana a few people our listeners uh, remember him and admires Baruch Goldstein who That's massacred right. Palestinians at the Ibrahimi mosque in 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 Bethlehem and then of course joining him is a coalition of uh, what they call it the uh, the uh, religious zionist power that's how they refer to it which one of 14 seats uh, again a whole different cabal of racist ethnic cleansers uh, people who call for expelling palestinians with the israeli citizenship not right. only palestinians in the 1967 and basically with the central goal just is to replace the native indigenous palestinian population with uh, jewish uh, incomers who who claim uh, under the birthright uh, and and that's that's the situation that's the government now we know that to me you know what israel is not, has not been now discovered as a racist state or an apartheid state. No, I was just going to say that, Jamal. This is not, not suddenly more, a more racist state. No, this is not breaking news. It's it's just, you know, it's not hiding anymore. It's, it's just not... exactly this is it's more transparent, and they are getting belligerent, and they don't they have no shame about it. Now the whole idea is this is who we are. We we don't want anyone except who is Jewish on on this land. and we don't care if you call us apartheid you know we're going to attack human rights watch we're going to attack uh, amnesty international we're not going to believe in any reports that the united nations offered and that's actually we've had a discussion about with the rapporteur uh, about this topic uh, of ap- ap- apartheid and the question is to me to you is how is the biden administration going to deal with this Uh, I think it's a really important question. I will say that we already know the answer. Before I get to comment on that, I want to talk about a couple of disgusting New York Times commentators. Because, you know, the lament about, oh, look at, quote, where Israel is headed or where it's going. You had Thomas Friedman and Brett Stevens writing these disgusting opinion pieces. And it's like Tom Thomas Friedman, this apologist, Israeli apologist, for years has been talking about, you know, you know, the 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 promise, the expectation, all of these wonderful things about bringing peace, things are better. And he wrote this disgusting uh, op-ed recently lamenting the fact of where quote Israel is going. My comment to Tom Friedman, Jamal is What do you mean where Israel is growing? It's been there for 74 years and now you're just waking up to it because of it because it's transparent. And then Brett Stevens has the audacity to pen uh an opinion piece basically saying, "Well, it's not as bad as you think." Basically saying, "Well, uh yes, this direction is not good, 
that the Israelis are going into, but it's not as bad as what's happening in other countries. <laughs> so yet yet another apology and cover-up. You have these two prominent opinion writers for the New York Times, basically, um, you know, covering for the Israeli atrocities and uh, in and and racist, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know, government. So, just to get to your question, Jamal, it's very simple. What will the Biden administration do? Nothing. They're not going to do anything. In fact, you had the Secretary of State Blinken call uh, Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, begging him, begging him to not pursue this UN report and taking right. it to the, you know, to the ICC. And basically, after 80 plus years of really disgusting leadership, which is the number of years that uh, Abu Mazen has been around, he basically told Blinken to take a hike, which, you know, finally, after all these years of him being kind of in, in many ways, uh, being moved easily by pressure from the Israelis or the Americans, finally said no to Blinken, finally said no to the United States. So I don't see any difference. I think we need to call it out more because we're, you know, if we're going to hold Putin accountable, if we're going to hold Kim Jong-un accountable, if we're going to hold all of these rogue regimes accountable, you know, we have to call it the hypocrisy of the Biden administration, of this government, of the State Department, uh, why they're calling to put pressure on the Palestinians to accept this this uh, hateful, racist, apartheid government. Of course, we should take it to the ICC. Of course, Jamal. But, Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And, and, and you're talking about the hypocrisy because uh, we know from our so sources that the Biden administration is uh, privately made it, uh, you know, very uh, in, in plain language to the Israeli leaders, its displeasure uh, at, at having these fascist uh, parties and uh, who are going to occupy now prominent seats in the Israeli government and possibly the Israeli defense ministry. That's what they're talking about, who, you know, they've negotiated with Benjamin Netanyahu because they are embarrassed about highlighting their hypocrisy because exactly it's not like they're against the Israeli government or they're going to uh, stop fine, uh, USA to Israel because now it is an apartheid and a fascist state. They're, it's not because uh, the human rights violations. It's because they are embarrassed by now the makeup of the government. That's all. That's all. They're just embarrassed about it. That's all it is, and, Jamal. And, and also including embarrassing not only Washington, D.C., but those normalizers in the Arab world, the Gulf allies, the UAE, etc., uh, who normalized, you know, with with Israel uh, under the Trump administration, and now they're going to see who they have normalized with. <laughs> they have normalized with a government that hates every single Arab and Muslim and non-Jew in that country. I mean, I mean, this is who well, they have normalized yeah. with. That's exactly right, Jamal. And um, we don't have time to go over it, you know, today, obviously, in terms of all of the normalizers but after this uh after this election it's amazing how some of the uh uh despotic rulers who have normalized uh relations with the apartheid regime 
in the Gulf, for example, were amazingly silent on these elections. Not a word was said coming from any of these, uh, you know, any of these despotic rulers in the Gulf. I mean, the situation, Jamal, if we look at it, we see the rise and acceptance of these despotic, you know, kind of criminal rulers, wherever it may be, whether it's Putin or Netanyahu, you know, being able to be these, quote, you know, strong, strong leaders who are actually very oppressive. And that club includes many of the monarchies in the Gulf. And um, let's not forget, you know, where where Donald Trump was in all of this in terms of his support of the apartheid regime, moving the embassy, things like that. Utter silence. But I want to just ask one question of you. Jonathan Greenblatt, you know, is the head of the ADL, right? And he's been screaming up and down, as is his job, you know, condemning anti-Semitism. Jamal, have you heard a word from Jonathan Greenblatt, who is the head of the ADL, about what he and the ADL thinks about the election of xenophobic, Islamophobic, hateful, uh, you know, regime and the apartheid regime? Have you heard a peep coming from Jonathan Greenblatt, who has no problem calling out hate in every corner of the world except except maybe one? Well, no. And and what they're engaged in, what is he engaged in with others, is deflection. And uh, now they're focusing on the IHRA's examples of anti-Semitism, including labeling uh, Israel a racist endeavor, which we say it here, and many people say it, it is a racist endeavor, and uh, and it is an apartheid state. And so what they're trying to do is pass laws in this country. If you label Israel as a racist state or an apartheid state, then you are an anti-Semite. And that's what he is been focusing on. Right. But we can call the president of the United States a racist, which, you know, and, and there's no problem with that. You can call for an armed insurrection against this government, which happened on January 6th, you know, last year. And there's minimal accountability from my point of view that they're able to do this. You can attack the husband of the Speaker of the House and laugh about it, you know, as a as a politician, make jokes about the fact that there's rampant political violence that goes on in this country. But, you know, when it comes to condemning a rogue apartheid, you know, xenophobic uh, regime uh, and trying to call out or hold accountable the, the apartheid regime of Israel, that's going to be made illegal in this country. I mean, again, we've talked about it. They're more critical in the Israeli press of these elections than 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 in the New York Times here, Jamal. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows. And we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>